Hello, folks. It's Jeff Salzman here, and welcome back to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday, April 19th, and I am happy to be back with you, and I hope you are too, as we embark on a fresh new look at current events through the lens of integral theory. The topic tonight, American politics, which is, you know, by any standards, at a high point uh, on the display of human evolution and action, and what fun it is, uh, for the most part. <laughs> I'm here with Brett Walker, our Daily Evolver producer. Say hey to the folks, Brett. Hey, everybody. And I am very grateful to Corey DeVos and the folks over at Integral Life for hosting us live tonight on Integral Radio. And for those of you who are listening live, it's always a good feeling to know that there are people here in real time with us. So you'll notice for those of you who are listening on your computer that there's a comment section on your screen where you can post your thoughts and questions, so please do that, and Brett and Corey will be keeping an eye on that. Well, it's been a few weeks since uh, we did this show. We've been doing uh, a, a bunch of interviews and working on a couple live events that we'll be doing later in the year, one of which is the Integral Incubator, which I will be doing with my friend and integral mentor, Steve McIntosh, will be doing that in August. And that is a fairly small group. We'll keep that around 30 to 35 people and um, work on really just developing integral consciousness. I mean, incubating integral consciousness. We do it here at the Integral Center in Boulder. And um, so if you're interested in that, check it out. And of course, I will be working with Diane Hamilton and Terry Patton on our fifth annual Integral Living Room, which will take place this upcoming November. And that is on the cheery topic of death and dying. So if you're interested in that, check it out, integrallivingroom.com. And it's so fun to be doing these events and to be doing this work in the integral world. All right, so let's turn to our topic of the evening, and that is what's going on in American politics with this presidential election. And of course, tonight's a big night with the primary election in New York, which is the second biggest state, a big haul for whoever wins in that state. And even though a lot of the energy and controversy and really the really interesting storylines of the election are happening on the Republican side of the street. Actually, tonight, the biggest nail-biter is what's going to happen between Bernie and Hillary in New York. And Brett is keeping an eye on the uh, election results because they are literally coming in as we speak. The polls just closed at 9 in New York at seven our time here in, in Colorado. So I don't know what we'll know here in the next hour, but of course the polls are such that Trump is expected to win by 20 points and Clinton's expected to win, according to the polls, by 10 points. Uh, but 
that has been wrong in the past here. So we'll just have to see, and we're going to see real soon. We're going to be joined later in the show by a real live Democrat, my dear friend and brother, Terry Patton, who has been doing some good integral thinking on how the Democrats can move forward uh, after this battle between Bernie and Hillary to a winning election and indeed an effective progressive presidency. So we'll look forward to talking to Terry in a few minutes. One of the things that I've talked about on this show about politics is just what an opportunity it really offers us to do integral practice because politics has a lot of juice. I mean, it really reaches down to the lower chakras, you know, to our lower strata of development, down to our power centers and our security centers and how we literally see the world. And, and we know, and this has been proven um, with uh, social science and psychology for the last several years in spades, that when it comes to politics, people of different political inclinations are literally wired differently. We seem to arise on the scene differently. And so conservatives have a different antenna for the information that is really important to them. And indeed, conservatives are tuned to making sure that we conserve what is good about the current system. While liberals, on the other hand, are more tuned to what's going to move us forward. A good metaphor for this is that we have people who naturally have their foot on the gas and people who naturally have their foot on the brake. And that both of these poles of you know, political sensibility need to be online for the system to be healthy. And being online means oftentimes being in contention. And that is just the way of the world, is that politics is the study of the use of power, of the application of power. And when you have groups of people who see the world differently and who think that power ought to be used radically differently, uh, in other words, liberals want to invest more power in the government. Conservatives want to invest more power in the private sector, that those two positions can be quite implacable and very difficult to integrate. And so we, as we do in all of evolution, we fight our way forward. We also love our way forward. You know, we, the other F word, <laughs> our way forward. And the, we seem to be tuned to both, and we're seeing that happen in, in spades here in this election. So uh, let me just play. Uh, I, I love to hear from you, and I get lots of emails and lots of speak pipes. And speak pipes are the voicemail feature that is on our website, thedailyevolver.com. There's this orange button where you can leave me a voice message, and lots of people do. And I can play them on the show and respond to them, whatever. And here's a message from one of our listeners, Lisa, who is writing about her uh, integral political practice of trying to soften up to the other side, 
which is one of the things that we talk about here. So, Brett, would you play Lisa's speak pipe, please? I will say that I'm pretty challenged on holding my multiple perspectives when it comes to especially Donald Trump. And I guess Ted Cruz, too, obviously. I think there's kind of an interesting thing going on, though. Um, For me, at least, is I have such a hard time finding compassion for him and his supporters, except in a very, very impersonal way. Every time it starts to get even close to personal, I get angry and sad and frightened. And But I do have a sense with Trump of um, how difficult it must be for him now. And certainly, I would imagine growing up, that's that's where my compassion for him comes in. I don't think a person acts like a bully and a braggart and constantly trying to impress upon the world how great he is, unless, you know, he doesn't think he is for whatever reason, how he was treated when he was growing up or whatever, I don't know. And when I access that point, like to see him as a little child, I actually have a lot of compassion for him. And that makes it easier for me to understand. And that is some of what we do as we uh, move into the integral stage of development. We really want to get beyond the idea and the practice of enemies and develop a friendliness to the whole system. That's one of the markers of integral consciousness is that we see that everybody is at the stage of development that they ought to be, that there is a, a force, an eros at work in the whole spiral of development that is taking care of all of us. And so we want to get curious about people rather than critical about people. Now note, and this is really important because you, you know you can feel like, wait a second, what good is that going to be? Because typically we associate resisting a, a, a particular point of view that you know we, we think is unhealthy by hating it or despising it. And we don't have to do that. There is a a settling down of that. It's, it's like Claire Graves, one of the original uh, psychologists behind Spiral Dynamics. He talked about the people at the integral stage of development being the universal donors. They're the people who can basically get along with anybody. And so one of the things we want to do with, with uh, say, a Donald Trump is, first of all, realize that we don't typically get a national politician who's operating at this stage of development, which is the red stage of development for those of you who are looking at your chart, or the warrior stage of development. And this is an early stage of development. This is actually a stage of development that comes online before before rules and laws, literally before the Ten Commandments. This is the stage of development in human history where it was you know, Genghis Khan, it was warlords, it was uh, kings, gangs, in modern times, the mafia. This is where, you know, in a, in a sense, it was simple in that your job was to align with the strongest, meanest son of a gun in the valley and hope that he or she, in some cases, particularly as we got into royalty, uh, the, the hope that they're as powerful as they say they are. And so this becomes your source of identity and safety. And we can feel that strata in ourselves. There's a part of me who, in fact, when Trump came on for the first 
you know, when he first came uh, down the escalator or up the escalator to announce her presidency, I thought, okay, well, maybe this guy can actually come in, bust up this calcified, polarized system in Washington, D.C., and do deals. And there's an argument for that. I mean, a deal maker, um, it's like I often thought that we could take a random hundred names from the phone book, give them a weekend and a couple whiteboards, and they could figure out our problems with the budget and social security and the safety net and college and all of that if they had 48 hours, 48 hours to do it. And there's some truth to that. And so you have Trump coming in and he is promising to do that. And his, the currency of his platform, if you will, is simply boasting or assertions. Uh, you notice that he's very light on policies, position papers. Um, he doesn't talk about those things. He says, I'm just going to get it done. And he says things like, I'll be the greatest jobs president God ever created. I'll build a big, beautiful wall and the Mexicans will pay for it. We're going to win so much, you're going to get tired of winning. Now, these are assertions. They're not policies. But this is typical of Red. And if you read the uh, rap music or, or the words of gangsters, it's, it's this puffing up. It's this look at me. Uh, there's a lot of flashing of bling and women and sexual prowess. And this is all very, very important to Trump. I mean, his apartment in, in Manhattan is like a palace in the sky. I mean, it's literally gilded everywhere. The ceilings are painted like the Sistine Chapel. Mar-a-Lago is a palace by any standards. I mean, going to the White House would be a significant step down uh, for Trump and Melania uh, because the jet, the Trump Towers, the casinos, it's all part of the this red sensibility where you really have to look good because there's really nothing else to fall back on. I mean, there's no police to go to at this stage of development. There's just aligning yourself with the strongest person and hoping for the best. And in that stage of development, and, and it's really interesting to, you know, feel our way into what it is to be read. For people at Red, and, and like I said, all of us still have a Red strata, no matter how far we have developed beyond it. But there are some people for whom their emotional center or various lines of development are centered in red, like Trump. And for them, the world is about uh, divided into predator and prey, or perpetrator and victim. And you'll notice that he goes back and forth with this, with a lot of felicity. He talks about being the victim of the process. He's very good at playing the victim. Uh, he's also very good at playing the conquering hero. These are the two poles of Red. So he's the victim of Megyn Kelly because she asked him an unpleasant question about things he said about women in the first debate. And he's been at war with her ever since because for Red, fighting is where it's at. That's sort of what you're wired to do. So it's astonishing, and it has been astonishing for everybody to watch this guy take on 
Fox News uh, to call the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal a bunch of losers, to take on George W. Bush in South Carolina, the most militaristic state in the, in the country, to diss the Iraq war, even to take on the wife of Ted Cruz by tweeting an unflattering picture of her. And he just fights. He fights. I mean, he just wakes up in the morning and he's ready to fight. And we perhaps know people like this. I, I think back on a friend I had for a long time who was like this. He was just always angry. And you talk about these goddamn politicians, these people in tra the traffic, the neighbors, his family. He was always angry. And, and I realized one day that anger was when he felt most alive. It was literally his source of energy. And you wouldn't want to, I mean, he's the last person you would ever want to fight with. I mean, you would submit or you would go somewhere else. It was just too unpleasant. Otherwise, I eventually did go somewhere else. But, um, you know, we see it in, we can even see it in ourselves. I, I have this red Jeff that I walk around with, with this sort of, Thin-skinned sensitivity, you know, angry, judgmental, short-fused, fearful. That fearful and angry go together. And that's one of the things that I think is so interesting about uh, Trump and about uh, what Lisa said in her um, comment about him, about his childhood. People often ask me about, you know, this evolution, cultural and consciousness evolution, and how children generally are, are pulled up to the center of gravity of the families that they live in and the cultures they live in and teachers and so forth. And you see this with Trump. Um, a, a perfect example is when I, I, I remember Anderson Cooper, this is a, a couple weeks ago, interviewing Trump about the, the you know, the tweeted photos of Ted Cruz's wife, Heidi, the unflattering photos. And Anderson Cooper saying, why'd you do that? And Trump's answer was, well, Cruz did it first, uh, saying that Cruz's, one of the super PACs, uh, tweeted a photo of Melania and one of her, you know, sort of semi-nude photo shoots when she was a model. And so Cruz did it first. Now, Cruz says he didn't have anything to do with it, blah, 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 but that's irrelevant. The justification that Trump gave was he did it first. And that's red. You know, if, if in the house I grew up in, he did it first wasn't good enough. If somebody hit me and I hit them back or somebody took something of mine and I took something of theirs, that I would be corrected. And the lesson would be, you're better than that. You know, just because somebody hits you doesn't mean you hit them back. You come to me, you go to a higher authority. Uh, if somebody takes something from you, you go to a higher authority. This is what humanity did as we moved out of red into a world that was ruled by a transcendent God who's, who said, vengeance is mine. You don't have to worry about vengeance anymore. I take care of it for you. We have heaven, we have hell. Everybody's going to get punished, rewarded. It's all going to work out in the bigger picture. So this is a huge developmental move for humanity. But it takes place in every home with every kid. And clearly, it didn't take place with, um, with Trump. And 
you know, the military school he went to apparently wasn't much better. So you could say, okay, that's a trivial example, or it's a good example, but, you know, it's trivial, the pictures of, of Melania and Heidi and whatever, you know, until you hear him talk about other things. So I heard him interview talking about torture, torturing uh, enemy combatants and, and suspected terrorists, and his statements on waterboarding, which is that we ought to bring that back and more, is what he said. And so when pushed by the interviewer, you know, you can't do that because it's torture, because we have G Geneva Conventions, because there's a whole reason that civil, uh, whole, well, categories of reasons why civilized countries don't do stuff like that. And his answer was, look at what they do. Look at what ISIS does. They behead people. They drown people in steel cages. You know, they, they kill their families. And so that's his answer. That's the red sensibility. They do it, so we have to do it too. And, and you can see Anderson Cooper, this, I forget who the other interviewer was, they're like, that's your argument? Really? And yet it is, and it really um, resonates with its audience. Now, its audience is the roughly maybe 50% of the Republican Party, and let's remember that the Republican Party is roughly 50% of the American people. So we're talking 20, 25% of the population really resonates with this. And these are people who are operating at red. And, and the key sensibility here is authoritarianism. And there's been much made of a couple studies. In fact, one of the guys was on Fareed Zakari a couple weeks ago who did these studies that showed that People who support Trump have just generally authoritarian impulses. Uh, when asked, would you prefer a dog that is loyal or playful, they choose loyal. Uh, when asked would, would, uh, how they would treat their kids would, in terms of do they want their kids to be obedient or do they want their kids to be creative, obedient. Uh, and that is just a stage of development that was very, very um, functional. For everybody, actually, about 10,000 years ago and for most of human history before that, you fell in line uh, behind the power structures. Uh, but now, you know, it's kind of anachronistic. And, and so, you know, what we can say about this is that this is, as I said, new on the scene. We haven't had, I mean, you could talk about George Wallace and maybe even Ross Perot a little bit. They, they sort of had the big man, strong man kind of thing going. But to have somebody who is so purely vibrating or transmitting this red energy is really new in American politics, and it's surprising everybody uh, with its power. Uh, where, you know, I know I promised you people that Trump would not get anywhere near the presidency. In fact, he wouldn't even win the um, uh, Republican nomination. I'm no longer entirely sure about that last part about the nomination. I don't think he'd win the presidency, but um, I don't think he's going to win the nomination either because he's just not qualified. And at some point that has to count and enough Republicans know that even if they're going to alienate this 20 to 25% of people who were alienated anyway. Um, although I really appreciate that these people now 
they're online. They've been woken up. And, 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 and this is what's really, this is the big story of this election. If we could just jump uh, to the uh, other side of the street here, to the liberal side of the street, we see something similar and, you know, and it's not equivalent and, and we can talk about some of the details. But we see on the far end of the uh, developmental spectrum up to green, postmodernism, we also in this election have something new. And that is an unabashed postmodern candidate uh, by the name of Bernie Sanders. And he too is coming online with... Um, a lot of the same purity of view or purity of transmission of Trump, only arguing, as I said again, unabashedly for d democratic socialism, which used to be a word that you would never expect a politician to utter in this country. And now it has been made safe by this 73-year-old you know, senator from um, from Vermont, and it's um, it's astonishing. But anyway, let's just get back to Trump for a minute. One of the things we can see is that, and again, this is a little bit of conjecture, but I'm going to stick with it until proven otherwise. And that is, there's no way that Donald Trump will win. He'll either get cast out of the nominating process or he'll lose to the Democratic nominee, probably Hillary Clinton. And by the looks of the numbers even coming in right now, she's at 61 and Sanders is at 38. Um, but what this means is that that authoritarian far-right strata, that red altitude demographic, will experience an abject defeat. And defeat is very, very good for people at red. It's one of the things they actually understand uh, deeply. Uh, because, you know, every human being wants to grow. Every human being wants to, to get somewhere, to become better, to become bigger. This is the evolutionary urge. This is Eros itself. And so people don't hang on to defeated ideologies uh, forever. Now, you know, there's going to be some people who are going to go to their grave with, uh, you know, make America great again caps, uh, their ball caps. But their kids won't, <laughs> you know. Uh, people will wake up and there is, throughout human history, one of the ways of getting groups of people or individuals to grow is to have them experience the uh, hard boundaries of the stage of development that they're at just where they can't get with that. And in a, a representative, pluralistic democracy, author authoritarianism uh, won't win. We're, we're too far beyond that. It can still win in parts of Afghanistan. It can still win in a lot of parts of the world where the center of gravity is, you know, maybe exit red, but red can always come in there and, and take charge. But uh, I would say that those of us in the first world, in the... Uh, uh, orange and green democracies, uh, red will be defeated, and that is a good thing. So anyway, that moves us to the next stage of development, which is amber, the traditionalists. And, and this is uh, a strata that is well occupied by 
candidates in history. This is a sort of Republican territory. This is social conservatives, religious, nationalistic, uh, pro-American to the point of being anti-immigrant. And this is the land of Ted Cruz. And we talked a little bit about Ted Cruz in a past show. In fact, I think I, we named the show How to Endure Ted Cruz. Because as I said, he's been one of the real pro projects for me in terms of my integral practice, uh, one of my objects of integral practice. And that is because I have such a negative chemical reaction to him. Uh, he was the guy, when he came on the television screen, I'd have to run for the remote, I'd leave the room, I'd pause, I'd mute, I did whatever I could to not be subjected to Cruz. And, you know, I kept thinking, you know, you think you're tolerant, Jeff, then why don't you try tolerating Ted Cruz? And so that became my project. And um, the first part of the problem for me, as it is with a lot of people, is that Ted Cruz doesn't come off as sincere. And, and so, you know, if somebody's insincere, it's really difficult to know who they are enough to really work with developing some empathy for them. I mean, you can have empathy for people who are chronically insincere too, but um, it just wasn't good enough for me. I mean, I, I just, uh, you know, I checked into uh, some of the history and uh, the, the real turning point for me was an interview that Alan Dershowitz did uh, about a week ago, and I forget w with who, but um, he talked about having Ted Cruz as one of his students. Dershowitz is a, a famous law professor at Harvard Law School, and Cruz was one of his students. And he said, first of all, that Cruz was a brilliant student, uh, completely opposite Dershowitz in terms of politics. Der Dershowitz is a famous liberal, and, um, and Cruz was back then, just a, a dyed-in-the-wool conservative. He was anti-affirmative action, pro-small government, pro-free enterprise, anti-abortion, pro-death penalty, right down the pro-gun, right down the conservative position. And that actually made me feel better about him. And it actually um, helped me to understand him in terms of his... Um, you know, basically the karma of his life story. And of course, he was raised in a family where the father left the, his mother and him and his sister when I think Ted Cruz was three or four years old. And, and the, the guy was a drunk, the father was a drunk and a womanizer and just basically out of control. He was a red hedonist himself. This is that stage of development. And he found Jesus. He was converted to Christianity. He became a pastor. And so he made that classic move. This is Rafael Cruz, Ted's father, made that classic move from red, disorganized, hedonistic to um, amber or traditionalism, where you get organized and civilized around the scripture. And so that becomes the story of Ted Cruz's life. This is, this is you know, and he has a loving father and all is well and, you know, life goes on and he, be, you know, he becomes, you know, this great success of Ted Cruz. So that's, you know, really baked in to his whole sort of personality. And that helps me to uh, warm up 
to Ted Cruz. And, and then I see that he is so committed to this point of view that his basic uh, political strategy is to mobilize the right wing. I mean, he's not going after the middle. Uh, as, as he says, there is no middle anymore. Americans have found their tribe. They've found their poles. There's some truth to that. And so it's not about going for the middle anymore. It's about bringing out, getting out, motivating your voters. And that is, you know, first tier all the way. That is my perspective. It's monoperspectival. My perspective wins. If only people understood the truth of my perspective, they would naturally go with it. Uh, uh, Bernie Sanders has that on the, on the left. And, uh, you know, what it misses is that there are people who really just have different antenna and operating systems altogether. So we'll see how that goes. But um, uh, Ted Cruz is, um, you know, he was anti-ethanol subsidies in Iowa. He is against abortion, even in the, you know, with the issue of the life of the mother and uh, rape and incest. I mean, these are very, very losing positions. But he has faith that people will see the rightness of them and, um, and he'll win. And we see this other uh, uh, story going on in the, in the country really coming from the same point of view. And this is the, this anti-transgender law coming out of North Carolina that says that people have to use the bathroom of the sex of their birth. And otherwise, it's illegal. So, you know, transgendered men can't go to the men's room. They have to go to the women's room uh, and so forth. And, you know, from an integral perspective, we want to see that these are people. This is a rear guard action against people who do not see the sexual revolution as in any way, shape, or form being progress. They see it as being a degeneration, all of it, from the 60s on up a degeneration of the way things ought to be, which is the way Scripture says. And so they live in a mythical world where there's a titanic battle between good and uh, evil. This is the amber world of the traditionalist. There's the people of God against the people of the devil. They may not see it quite that vividly, but there's a feeling that, you know, you got divorce and adultery, and then you got homosexuality, and now— our wives and sisters and daughters can't even be sure that the lady in the toilet stall next to them doesn't have a penis. You know, give us a minute to get used to this. This is too far, too fast for these people. Now, you know, you can see that they're bunched up in a lot of the, the, the um, southern states and so forth. Uh, and uh, this is just a, basically a rear guard action against progress that is doomed to failure. But that's where we're seeing these little outbreaks of amber that Ted Cruz is trying to run with in the, in the guise of religious liberty. But we'll see how it goes. All right. So that's our red. That's our, our red warrior stage, our uh, amber traditionalist stage. And then we have the modern stage, which is the orange stage. And this is generally where we pick our, our presidents. And this is where John Kasich is, you know, a little right of center, uh, two-term governor of a swing state, uh, on the House Armed Services Committee, head of the Budget Committee, 
and just uh, a guy who's not out to set his hair on fire, not out to blow up the system, but out to fix the system and make it better. And this is that, you know, that's basically pretty thin gruel when you have people on both the right and the left who are preaching a more ideological, ideologically pure message, such as Ted Cruz in his own way, Donald Trump. And even though his is chaotic and not ideal, it's pre-ideological down at Trump stage. And then Bernie Sanders, of course, has sort of a you know doctrinaire green um, sensibility. But this is where, as I said, you know, the, the, this is the world of Romney, of of um, John Kerry, of Michael Dukakis, of uh, Bob Dole, of Al Gore. Al Gore sort of got more radical when he got out of politics. But it's a mushy middle, and it. Um, you know, you can see where John Kasich is uh, falling behind, and yet he's the only one, uh, according to polling, who could beat either of the Democrats. So we'll see if uh, what the Republicans do here in July at the convention. But uh, Orange this year is really out of luck. All of the Orange candidates from both sides are pretty much out of the game. And we can talk about Hillary here because <clears throat> she's a little harder to peg for me. And, um, and I think uh, to get into this topic of, of moving up to Hillary and, and Bernie Sanders, uh, that it's time to bring on Terry. And uh, Brett, do we have Terry with us? We're going to call him right now. Okay, cool. So this is Terry Patton, my dear brother and friend in the Integral Enterprise. And you, you can find out more about Terry on terrypatton.com, in his telecourse, Beyond Awakening, his work on in integral spiritual practice. Of course, he's my partner with Diane Hamilton in the integral living room. And he is a living, breathing Democrat. <laughs> in person. In person, on the line, live. So how are you doing tonight, Terry? I'm doing great. Good. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the numbers, and currently, I don't know how what percentage is in, but Hillary's beating uh, uh, Bernie by 60 to 39%, so 20 points. That's a big spread right now. Who knows how it'll turn out? Uh, right. But, they but what about you, 37, 37% reporting. Is, is that right? Yeah. So yeah. it looks like the, um, the polls are right, and she'll win uh, fairly decisively tonight. And that pretty much... Um, begins to nail down her claim to the nomination uh, and gets us sort of mentally in this sort of post-Bernie-Hillary struggle to Bernie-Hillary reconciliation. And do you think that's in the cards, and, and how do you see that happening? What do you, what do you see well, in this Well, I think, I, I think there's a, a deep reckoning because the energy that animates the Sanders campaign is so passionate and uh, intense. And there are a lot of folks on that side who've really gotten into hating Hillary I know. and uh, saying they wouldn't support her uh, in the fall. They'll, they'll vote for the Green Party candidate, Jill Stein, uh, rather than support Hillary. They've you know, begun to believe the, uh, you know, the negative campaign uh, Narrative, and uh, you see that even in the integral world space on on Facebook do, and so yeah. forth. Yeah, it's really kind of surprising to me, actually. Well, it, it, it Bernie has what a tremendous 
campaign and social, social movement Bernie has yeah. been able to, to mount. He, is, he doesn't have to win the nomination to have won a tremendous political victory. He has started something of a political revolution in that he's uh, brought a challenge from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party that is so strong in such a crucial year that he has to be reckoned with. Yeah. The Democratic Party cannot <clears throat> unite behind Hillary without Hillary embracing some essence of uh, Bernie's message. His, his message has won a central place in the platform yeah. of, of the Democratic Party. It can't reunite without acknowledging yeah. uh, the, the nerve that his campaign has struck. Yeah. And I think that this recognition of uh, of the corrupting influence of money in politics is right at the center yeah. of that. And that's where he's made Hillary look terrible and uh, where she's been most vulnerable. And I don't think that... Uh, I, it, it's my hunch, though, you see, that Hillary was, you know, right from the beginning, quite an idealist. She was certainly ambitious, no question about that. But when I really look into what I see in the demonstration of, of Hillary Clinton's life, I see an, an idealist who wanted to against her own and her husband's interests, but as a champion of the good. She's uh, embraced... Uh, centrist democratic uh you know she's been a, uh, on the left she moved she's raised on the right uh, by her republican father but she she her ideals were were left wing ideals but it was at a time that the democratic party was pretty well marginalized uh, yeah. democrats had lost something like four out of the last five presidential elections when bill was able to win and it was by tacking to the center along with al gore that they succeeded in doing that and, you know, Hillary, essentially, by getting right there into the dirty business of doing politics, learned how politics is done. That yeah. everybody who has a constituency has power, they have a seat at the table, and you've got to do business with them. Yeah. And her uh, history shows that, in some sense, she became a creature of the system, but there are some benefits to that. You, you, if we're going to be a functional society, we can't just have the vanquishing of some elements of the society by others. We, we're not going to have cooperation. We're going to have a sort of tension of rebellion. And my diagnosis of the problem in the country right now is that more than anything, it's the gridlock. It's the refusal to cooperate that yeah. is hamstringing us. Yeah. And I think that because Hillary will sit down with the guys at Goldman Sachs. She'll sit down with the Republicans, and she'll, you know, deal. Right. And she doesn't show herself culturally to be as aloof and superior as, as even Barack. I have hopes that a, a Clinton presidency can actually be a, a unifying force in, in, in the nation. But she's not going to get there unless she first acknowledges and really validates this revolution that Bernie yeah. has fought and won. Yeah, it's well, yeah, won. Yeah, it's it, over. It's won. Yeah, I, I, I actually jotted down uh, the script of one of Bernie's latest ads because I just thought it it really just crystallized the, the whole wave that you're talking about, of, you know, what's coming on here. 
And let me just read it. It's a few sentences. He says, Wall Street bankers shower Washington politicians with campaign contributions and speaking fees. What do they get for it? A rigged economy, tax breaks and bailouts, all held in place by a corrupt campaign finance system. And while Washington politicians are paid over $200,000 an hour for speeches, they oppose raising the living wage to $15 an hour. That's powerful. Yeah. You know, that's really powerful stuff. And that hadn't really been articulated in quite that way. And I think just there's a couple of things that I, I would say from an, sort of using integral theory. One of the is, is that it's what Ken has talked to us about, uh, that thoughts are things. That if you get enough people thinking a thought or, or seeing a worldview and enough people talking about it, that actually adds to the sort of morphogenetic field or morphogenic field around that idea so that it becomes a thing and it's become sort of a permanent acquisition of the system. And I think what, is, what else is, is so powerful about it is that evolutionarily, what Bernie's talking about is next. I mean, we have an orange economy. Orange economies are built around growth. That's a, that's a wonderful thing when you're pre-orange, when you're pre-modern and you're looking for electricity and material well-being and security. In fact, it, it's interesting to note that the fastest growing part of the world right now is Africa, which continent-wide is growing between 10 and 11%. That's astonishing. If that was happening in the West, we'd be, you know, uh, celebrating. I mean, it would be astonishing. But well, that's what happens. Totally when, dangerous to the planet. Well, of course, yeah. But we'd still be celebrating. <laughs> they have a much lower baseline. Well, yeah, exactly. Percentage exactly. growth rates mean something. To yeah, them. yeah. So that so once an economy gets stabilized at orange and people are living decent lives and there's enough for everybody, then we move naturally. This is eros at work. We move into the green economy which is about sustainability. At this point, green becomes world-centric. We see the planet. We see the whole planet as being finite. We see limits to growth. And that is, you know, that's been well installed in like Northern Europe. And that's well installed in the green meme here. You know, the top 25, 20% of of the, you know, of the population of the United States. But Bernie is um, really uh, solidifying, bringing that forward in a way that, as you say, Hillary's going to have to deal with it, and really everybody's going to have to deal with it from now on. And I think that's an, a, an amazing achievement of Bernie, for which I'm very grateful. Exactly, me too. I have, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit older. Everybody I know who's under 40 most everybody I know who's under 45 is feeling the burn. Yeah. And almost everybody I know who's over 45 <laughs> is tending to support Hillary. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> I think now you mentioned it, I, I, I would, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'd say roughly the same thing. It's, it's generational. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm right yeah, on the really, cusp uh, and I'm feeling the burn. You're on, you're on the cusp and you're... Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely falling on the side of, of Bernie. Yeah. So, yeah. how, so how well, do you feel about Hillary, Brett? Well, you know, she, it's not very exciting. She's, I'm, I'm afraid that Hillary is so compromised. I mean, I, I get what Terry's saying in, as far as her 
positive attributes. She's been in the system and she knows how to wheel and deal. But she's, I feel sometimes that she's just so compromised by all the people she's indebted to <clears throat> that I, I don't have any faith that she's going to try and change the system. And I'm, I really think it does need changing. Right on. <laughs> yeah. So what do you say to that, Terry? I mean, that's, I saw Bill Maher the other night and he had Susan Sarandon on. She's a big Bernie supporter. And so Bill was pushing her on, so are you going to support Hillary if she gets a nomination or when she gets a nomination? He was quite sure she would. And Susan Sarandon, was, she was great, actually. She said, I just can't make those words come out of my mouth right now. <laughs> she said, You're at, don't, don't ask me that now. That That's line. too yeah. soon. I'm not willing to let those words come out of my mouth. And, you right. know, I get it. And, and yet, maybe Hillary could be a great president. I don't know. I mean, there's... Uh, I don't know whether well, you know, I put... she's not running. She's not running for a vision holder. She's running for COO. Yeah, right. She's she when she gives her stump speeches, where she goes is into the specifics of the programs that she actually thinks she can champion and perhaps get through Congress. So I think what will need to go on is a. a some very serious conversations between the Clinton and the uh, Sanders camps. And Hillary's going to have to grant some serious influence over policy to the Sanders camp, you know, perhaps through a, uh, a designated, you know, a designee like uh, Elizabeth Warren. Maybe Bernie might have a direct role. When I look at Hillary's deeply held positions, I think that she... Uh, actually can embrace the uh, intentions that uh, the core intention of, of, of the Sanders candidacy, which is an anti-corruption move to, to rescue the system from yeah. money politics. Now, the, the biggest mechanism for changing that has actually got to do with who you appoint to the Supreme Court. Either one of them is going to fulfill that aspect of, of you know, we can trust either for the progressive to, agenda. Yeah, yeah, we're going to overturn Citizens United uh, if a Democrat uh, appointed nominee is joins the Supreme Court, and it'll change the balance, and it'll change that law because it's such a consequential bad law that I think everybody on the in the Democratic Party agrees about. There's more to it. There's all kinds of, there's a revolving door, there's, there's the, the, all the complexities that, that Hillary has been compromised by. But I don't think that's what she stands for. I think she became a creature of the system in order to rise to power in it. I think we have deeper problems. They have to do with the state of the planet, environmental and economic uh, unsustainability yeah. that's really radical. And I don't think that even Bernie, who's kind of rooted in a Marxist approach and really is, uh, he says the right things environmentally, but when I imagine a President Sanders with a Republican-controlled House of Representatives, I don't end up with a visualization of transformative environmental regulation yeah. <laughs> actually getting into the law of the land. Uh, my hope is, though, that if the Democrats can unite around a Hillary candidacy with a, a, a much more left-wing vice president, uh, you know, possibly even Bernie, 
and uh, a platform that has very strong planks that are come from Bernie's side, such that she really kind of has to let him win the argument, even though she gets to be the person in the top position. Yeah. I think that that changes the dynamic. And then I think actually that either Cruz or Trump, as the Republican nominee, is so clearly unfit for that role, g- given the global power of the United States, that we have a possibility of a kind of reunion, you know, under the first woman president, who, who as her main virtue, looks a lot like, uh, you know, the single mother who just works her tail off doggedly day after day, week after week, year after year, taking care of things. That's kind of Hillary's modus. And I think that there is a potential for a less divided country. Now, we're so divided right now, and the, and the karmas of that division and bitterness are so strong. I don't, I'm not imagining a, a tra- utter radical instant transformation of that polarization. But people are quite aware of the... You know, I, I was commenting to you about this, Jeff, in a private conversation. I was such an Obama partisan in 2008, and I hated Hillary back then. I just hated her, hated her, <laughs> hated her. And then when uh, he appointed her secretary, he said, oh, you're so great. You're going to reunify the, the country by doing that. And I was, it was, I was giving Barack all the credit. But then I saw the way she handled the job and everything, and I began to really appreciate her. And then I realized just how powerful, just as you were saying at the beginning of the program, these deep, visceral security and power uh, energies are that are stirred by politics and how when you're rooting for your guy and the other person is against him, you just hate him. You got to hate him. And I think that that at least the integralists who are following this conversation need to appreciate, particularly the Bernie-supporting integralists, how they've been polarized just by those mechanisms. And I, too, feel them. I mean, we yeah. all, and, you know, we have them running through us. It's not wrong to feel them, and we have to heed what they're telling us to some degree. Yeah. We also have to be able to make subject-object and yeah. recognize that we can't let that, yeah. we can't let the animal run the show. Well, we'll have a bigger enemy at that point, too. You know, either be Donald Trump or, or, or Ted Cruz. That that'll yeah. help. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, the, well, especially if the polls show anything close to either of those. Uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, most people on the on the left aren't going to make the Ralph Nader mistake again. You know, where you you, you, you well, they're making the Ralph Nader mistake right now they're, by they're supporting promised. Bernie to the point that they hate Hillary. That's well, the Ralph Nader mistake, enough. in my but, opinion. But, but, Going into the voting booth and, 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 and hitting a third party, that's a serious act. And, you know, in November. You might want to yeah. do it, yeah, but think twice. If your state is anywhere close and you do that right. in, this year, you're, I think that, that there's no moral defense. For yeah. that. On the other hand, there are going to be a lot of people who don't even go into the voting booth. That's, that's the, right. the, the turnout issue, she absolutely needs Bernie's energetic support for her yeah. candidacy. And the only way she can win that energetic support is support to his platform yep. and his reformation of the direction of politics. His political revolution has to triumph. Yeah. I no. really think that's the for, only it, point of reunification. Yeah, and it's really exciting. 
All right, my friends. I'm inspired, yeah. I, I thank you, too. Jeff. Yeah, thank you, Terry, for coming on and, and sharing your insights. We'll, we'll check in later uh, because we're, we're just getting started here. Yeah, we are. All right. The show has begun. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you, Terry Patton. And um, I see we're at the end of our time here. And uh, thank you again, Integral Life, for hosting this. And I... As always, really encourage those of you who are turned on by integral theory and the great power it has to, you know, show us more of what's going on. I would encourage you to become members of Integral Life. It's about a hundred bucks a year, and uh, that is the central uh, uh, virtual portal, uh, internet portal for all things integral. It's the home for Ken Wilber and his work, and the original home for Daily Evolver. Although Daily Evolver is now on, I have my own site, dailyevolver.com, which Brett has been fine-tuning. I really encourage you to go there. It's looking good. And um, also we're on iTunes and all of the pod aggregators, podcast aggregators. So um, stay tuned and um, we'll uh, keep looking at American politics and our ever-changing, ever-evolving world here on Daily Evolver Live on Tuesday nights. See you next week. We're going to play uh, the show out with uh, comments from listeners. Oh, thanks, Brett. Yeah, good night, everybody. Hi, Jeff. You're thinking about this uh, turning the camera onto ourselves, back onto ourselves. I love this. Um, remembering the documentary, the short documentary called The Overview Effect, which talks about the spiritual experience of astronauts after they came back to Earth and after they had looked out the window and seen the Earth as a ball floating in space, and that's that first picture that we have from the late 60s, and how turning the camera back on ourselves is actually a path to the spiritual experience. Regarding crowdocracy and the role of the, um, the subreddit moderator or the person who protects the process, this is the person whose role is actually the ritual elder who holds the container. And I think that it's a really important role. And I think that viewing these processes through the lens of ritual can be really valuable. Uh, I'm also a therapist and um, that's the role of the therapist in group therapy, right? It's the clients who do all the work, but the role of the therapist is to hold the space for them to do the work. And I'm also a musician. And this is the role of the bass and the drums in, in group improvisation, right? They hold the center while the other people go off and, and, discover new new areas and you know it's like their role is to keep the container safe i think that the next evolutionary step is actually development of group mind of people working together and tapping into the shared wisdom and i I think that that is not just metaphorical but an actual thing that happens i've been really really inspired by the daily evolver podcast lately um especially the episodes of the shrink and the pundit with you and dr keith I just wanted to touch base with you about um, a concept you and Dr. Keith were talking about in an episode about what depression is trying to tell us. I really loved the idea of thinking of pathologies as developmental stages rather than some character flaw some personal shortcoming or maybe even like a genetic thing like, well, my dad did this too, so I'm doomed to do this. Um, 
I, I think that, that seeing them as developmental stages and that they're, they might be exactly the behaviors that we need to employ at a certain time in our lives, I think that really helps kind of destigmatize and bring into the light what we might see as our own behavioral or mental shortcomings. And that's really helpful because when things are destigmatized, we can kind of bring them into the light so we can work with them a little bit better. Um, like you guys say, uh, or, you know, working with your shadow is helpful because while things uh, are unconscious, you can't really work with them. So they can maybe, they might control you more than if you just shed a little light on them. I, would like to offer a critique. There's a, a heavy focus on systemic or cultural analyses of altitudes with less focus given on individual altitudes and lines of development. So for example, you had a political correctness episode. I think a uh, important part of the analysis for political correctness comes down to a individual moral stage of development, like you were saying at green, maybe. And how does that play in with an emotional development at red or an emotional development at amber? Because having worked and interacted with the social justice space quite a bit, what I tended to find was you'd have green or teal types of uh, cognitive worldview or moral development in the individual with a very, very obvious maybe red or uh, magenta sort of emotional development. The argument over feelings and emotional development gets conflated with the argument over social justice and moral development. And I think those are important lines to tease apart when you're doing an integral analysis. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for your brilliant discourse on the big history, which pretends to answer the big why questions, but really only answers the big how questions. I'm a faithful listener who's frustrated that big history and gets all those big grants and big smooches from academia and integral visionaries and practitioners like Ken Wilber get snide labels. They get tossed in a scrap heap with the new age thinkers. It's tempting to play down Integral's uh, spiritual component, even though it's my favorite piece of the pie. It's the bridge that connects the heart and the brain, the art and the technology and the science and religion. But you know what? I think Jonathan Haidt is an integralist waiting to happen, maybe even Sam Harris. But it won't be debate that wakes him up. It'll be that little shift in perspective where they say, yes, maybe the elephant knows more than the rider. Anyway, Jeff, thanks for your beautiful work, and it's a joy to visit with you every week.